1: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to Tacovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
0: Hello and welcome to RSO Podcast. I am Ron Spomer and I'm welcoming you to some of my old adventures in the wilds of North America) <laughs> I have been an outdoor writer for more years than I care to remember, and over that time I've had some wonderful adventures in some beautiful places, and I am reading articles that I had written decades ago, and it's kind of fun to go back in time and see how things have changed and how much they've remained the same. And today I am going to be reading an article that was published in 1995, but the actual hunt covered in this article, occurred in 1982. So that takes you guys back, and I go back a lot farther than that. But it'll be interesting to see what happened. the uh, title of this story is Best Little Pronghorn Ranch in Colorado. <laughs> and this uh, was in Big Game Adventures magazine. <clears throat> well, Let's just see what happened. Into every life a little rain must fall, but not this time. This hunt was dream fulfillment, perfection. From the coyote serenades at dusk to the territorial calls of big pronghorn bucks at dawn, everything transpired as it was supposed to. Except for one tiny imperfection that haunts me to this day, 12 years later. Among the pantheon of antelope states, Colorado does not sit high. It does not have the numbers Wyoming does, nor the trophies of Arizona, but it lay next door to Kansas, where I was living at the time. If I could draw one of the limited tags, I could squeeze a weekend hunt in, in a busy schedule, at minimum cost. A co-worker knew a Colorado rancher who, rumor had it, hadn't allowed any pronghorn hunting on his spread for six years. Six years? Why, the place would be crawling with trophy bucks. I drooled. I dreamed. I called the rancher, and I sweet-talked my way into a hunt. He'd even let me bring a partner, Mike Cox. And we would be the only hunters on 30,000 acres. Well, there's no competition, no vehicle hunters, the bane of pronghorn hunting. We might just pull off the perfect hunt. But first, we had to draw two of those limited tags, and the odds for that weren't good. But we paid our money, took our chances, and scored. Two hurdles jumped without a hitch. Ideally, I like to scout a hunting territory well before the season to familiarize myself with the land and its inhabitants, but our work schedules did not permit that. We were, however, able to drive out after work Thursday night, camp in a high plains pasture, and scout the ranch Friday, September 24th, the day before the opener. The ranch owner oriented us via a large wall map showing his property boundaries. He then pointed out places where he and his ranch hands had been seeing some big bucks. And then I asked him to confirm the rumors. Do you host very many hunters every year? Oh, no, there hasn't been an antelope hunter here in, oh, five to seven years, I guess. (laughs) And how many hunters will be out this weekend? Well, just you two. You have the whole place to yourselves. He wished us luck and turned us loose. Mike and I were, were as giddy as a couple of teenage boys leaving for their first dates with the prom queens. When we'd driven past a couple of gates and out of earshot of the ranch, we whooped and hollered and danced around Mike's old pickup like crazy men. The uniqueness of our situation was not lost on us. We were facing a hunting opportunity enjoyed by few since the settling of the plains more than a hundred years earlier. This was Lewis and Clark stuff. Into the unknown, virgin territory. Bucks that hadn't seen a hunter their entire lives. Well, visions of 17-inch horns danced in our heads. You realize, of course, what, what we can do here, I asked Mike. We can look over every buck on the place, size them up, and then hunt them at our leisure. Nobody's going to screw things up. No one will rush us. No one will shoot the bucks out from under us. This could be perfect. Cape. Cape was the first buck we saw. He was standing at the upper end of a ragged draw studded with cholla cactus, sage, and a spattering of junipers on the north-facing slope. His horns laid out wide, giving him the look of an African cape buffalo. The spreading horns made judging him slightly difficult, but we guessed him between 14 and 15 inches. Mike liked him a lot, but since I'd spotted him, I had dibs. Well, let's see what's out there. Let's see what else is out there, Mike said. I grabbed a spotting scope and we climbed a gravel slope to the top of a mesa a hundred feet above the creek. Here lay quintessential pronghorn country. Dry, yellow, short grass plains bisected by sharp runoff draws and bounded by low mesas dotted with short, rounded, dark junipers. There was a much-exposed rock and gravel as grass in most places. Yuccas with their long needle-tipped leaves mixed with low sage sprinkled sparingly amid buffalo grass, blue grama grass, side oats grama, drought-tolerant species typical of the High Plains transition zone between the wetter prairie to the east, where grasses are too high for pronghorns, and the mountain forests to the west, where trees preclude the sharp-eyed pronghorn for the same reason. There's a band, Mike called out, just as I picked up the white rumps of a bunch with the spotting scope. Yeah, yeah, I got them. Hey, looks like a good buck. Nah, doesn't look nearly as big as Cape. Yes, it is. The one on the right? He's every bit as big as Cape. Maybe bigger. There, see how much his tips curl back when he turns broadside? Well, that'll add a couple more inches to what he looks No way, there's almost no curl on that buck. He won't go 13 inches. What are you looking at? I asked as I pulled back from the scope and I looked at Mike. Well, he had his binoculars turned to the northeast. (laughs) I'd been looking directly east and we'd been comparing different bucks. Well, as the morning wore on, we drove the ranch trails, checking out fence line boundaries, spotting scaled quail, dodging behind cacti and yucca and locating group after group of pronghorns. Despite our earlier hopes, nothing in the 17-inch range revealed itself. Unlike deer, which must mature to four or five years and grow increasingly larger antlers each year until they begin to decline at oh nine 9 or 10 years, pronghorns mature by age three. A three-year-old could have horns just as large as an eight-year-old because the bulk of annual horn growth is made during winter. That's why Arizona, with its mild winters, produces so many monster pronghorns, and why six years of no harvest wasn't really going to mean we'd find 17-inch bucks in Colorado. Well, that night we basked before a juniper fire that was keeping the desert chill at bay, and we listened to coyotes howling over some private joke. Well, which one do you want to hunt? Mike asked as he hugged a cup of cocoa. We'd been debating the merits of several bucks all day and had whittled them down to two. Cape and that windmill buck, the big guy with deeply hooked horns, was running with a bunch of does near a windmill that fed a stock tank watering. Cape's the most interesting, no doubt, I said. But I think windmill will score better. You really like Cape, don't you? "Eh, He's the one I'd pick, Mike said. And that's the way we did it. Mike would try for Cape at dawn, and since we had no competition to worry about, I'd accompany him, and then we'd go after... The windmill buck cape was right where we'd left him at the head of that draw mike judged the wind and he began slipping toward him at dawn i followed with a camera when mike raised up what should have been ooh, less than 200 yards from the buck he discovered his quarry had moved at least 400 yards away two does had strolled by and led him on we tried another route Advanced, retreated, advanced, and retreated again. The vagaries in the landscape and the prancing antics of our game prolonged that stalk. Finally, Mike made it to the final ridge. Cape was now up on the flats where stocking cover consisted of gravel and isolated bunches of ankle high grama grass. Mike would have to take this shot or wait until his buck moved back to more rugged country. The fact that he was near the property boundary fence argued against waiting. He might move across, or an unscrupulous hunter might shoot him and drag him across. So Mike crouched and duck walked from yucca to yucca. He dropped to his belly, and he crawled 50 yards. Finally, he lifted his Remington out 6 sighted through his scope, allowed for a stiff morning wind, and made a 300-yard shot. Though only slightly over 14 inches, the buck had heavy bases, good prongs, and looked every bit as pretty as Mike thought it would. The tan and white striped pattern around his neck and a broad black nose patch stood in bright contrast to the dark spreading horns. Mike was tickled. It was his best pronghorn ever. I stayed with the carcass while Mike hiked back for the truck. Within moments, I was doubly relieved that Cape was on the ground because a pickup cruised the fence line less than a hundred yards away. And standing in its bed and leaning over the cab were two men with rifles. They were obviously looking for pronghorns to shoot at. But I will not dishonor the tradition of hunting by mislabeling them as hunters. I had little doubt that had Cape been standing, they'd have thrown lead at him. Such disgusting practices are the bane of pronghorn hunting across too much of the West. Practitioners of this mechanized slaughter ought to be drummed out of the ranks. After field-dressing Cape, we hung him in the shade of a juniper. Now let's go see about that windmill buck, Mike said. A wave of panic swept over me when we couldn't spot the herd from the mesa. This was the way pronghorn hunting usually went for me. Each time I'd scout a decent buck, other hunters would roar through the area in vehicles and spook it or kill it. Stop worrying, Mike said as I fretted. No one else is in here. We haven't heard any trucks or shots. We'll find him. Let's hike down there. Maybe we can spot him from the windmill tower. Well, Mike was right. (laughs) We climbed that skinny metal tower and, with his binocular, instantly spotted game. Ah, there they are, off to the northeast. "'Hill's in your way down there,' he stage-whispered. "'Is he there?' "'Well, it looks like it. "'It's hard to tell. There are at least three bucks. "'They're all pretty good. "'Yeah, I think the big one's there. "'Jeez, all you've got to do is go, go up this erosion cut, "'belly over that ridge, and they'll be right in front of you. "'Well, hadn't you better get down? "'They'll see you up there. "'Nah, they're a good quarter mile out. "'I doubt they'll even think to look up here. "'I'm just going to sit and watch it.' "'Well, okay.' I trotted into the dusty erosion channel leading away from that ridge. All but my head was hidden in that cut, and sage along the rim covered most of that. But as I neared the end of the bottom, it got shallow, as I was crouched over with little more than my knees covered. I stopped for a breather, and I turned to check on Mike, and well, he looked small and non-threatening up on that windmill, he was signaling, signaling that the goats were right over the ridge and close. I chambered around into my Ruger 270, and I clicked on the safety. And at the press of the trigger, 57.8 grains of powder would send that 130-grain Hornaday spire point zipping wherever I pointed it at 3,000 feet per second. The rifle, with no other modifications than a free-floated barrel, regularly placed three shots inside of less than an inch at 100 yards. It had taken much game for me, and I was supremely confident in it. I slipped forward, crouched, but I wasn't going to crawl through the prickly bear cactus terrain until I had to. Now, within seconds, I had to. Antelope ears suddenly poked above the yellow ridge line. I dropped to my belly. Two, three, four does bounded into view less than a hundred yards away. I breathed heavily and lifted my binoculars. The magnified image would have floored me had I not already been tight to the ground. A pair of splendid, tall, heavy, shiny black horns bobbed against the blue sky. Then came the ear tips, two big dark eyes, the black nose, and finally the barred neck of that buck. Unaware of lurking predators fixated on the does, he kept coming. This would be an easy shot. I lifted and aimed the rifle, tracking the buck as it flickered in and out of view between clumps of yucca. And then, confusion. As I waited for a clear shot, another buck appeared behind the first one. And before I could sort either one out, they both whirled and ran back over the ridge. Within seconds, several more does ran into view. Then three bucks streaked past here was classic harem action the herd buck was chasing off the rivals while trying to keep his lady friends both in formation and satisfied my challenge was to determine which of the fast appearing and disappearing bucks was the largest i did not want to shoot a lesser buck after getting this close well the ridge was suddenly as empty and quiet as it had been active moments earlier A thin curtain of dust was the only sign that the trophy pronghorn of my life had recently been less than two good arrow shots away. I lay panting and waiting, but nothing reappeared. Finally, I rolled over and put the binocular on Mike. Gone. He was signaling, gone. "'the herd had apparently run off to the north. "'I jumped up and cautiously walked over the rise, "'and the big valley before me was empty, "'except for a dust ball in the far distance. "'I trained my seven power glasses on this "'and found to my dismay a large herd running all out "'as if a pack of cheetahs were on their tails. "'My heart sank so close and I'd blown it. "'Just to be safe, I forced myself "'to make a careful search of the valley.' and there stood Windmill. There was no mistaking him this time. His nose was tied to a doe's tail with an invisible line. Whither she went, he went. Her two fawns of the year trailed in a confused daze, but they were in the very bottom of that broad, naked valley. A snake couldn't have stalked them. While I pondered my next move, that reluctant doe began trotting purposefully south, up out of the valley and toward a series of low ridges. The buck and fawns followed and followed and followed. And finally, now at least a mile away, they stopped, settled down, and started feeding. I continued to watch for several minutes until convinced they'd calmed at least for the moment. And then I backed down that erosion cut toward Mike and his catbird seat. Did you see them? I asked. Yep, they're still feeding out there, slowly working west. He's approaching her every once in a while, but he's not running her. Well, what happened back there? Why did they run? Uh, I know they didn't see me, and the wind was in my face. I don't know. He was trying to keep two other bucks out of the herd. He was running them back and forth, but they kept trying to slip back in. Finally, the does just got so spooked, I think they just took off. He was able to keep that one herded away from the main bunch, so she must be ready, but I don't think he's going to leave her. You'd better stalk him while you can. He is the big one, isn't he? I mean, those other bucks that showed up were almost as big. I didn't want to shoot the wrong one. No, he's the big one. I can see him from up here. Go down this main drainage about a half a mile, then start over the ridges until you spot him. I'll signal you if he moves off. Well, I left at a trot. My daypack was bouncing between my shoulder blades. My rifle was at my side. The going was quiet and slightly tiring in the sandy wash. When the windmill looked to be about a half mile off, I climbed up the east ridge and I peeked. "'right into the face of my buck. "'He and the doe had come a considerable distance west, "'losing her two fawns in the trek. "'A little steep side drainage lay between us. "'He and his doe stood on the far slope, "'broadside to me, staring. "'They'd only seen the top of my head. "'I froze until they finally looked away. "'I stayed frozen, knowing from past experience "'that they'd quickly look back to see if I was still there.' If not, they might get nervous and run. Sure enough, they snapped back to study the orange cap atop my head. Twice more they played that game before dropping to forage and turning nonchalantly up the ridge. Relaxed! I quickly dropped, shucked off my pack, pushed it before me, and crawled to the crest. There I laid the rifle over the pack, inside which I'd carried large bags filled with dry beans. The pronghorns heard me rattling in the gravel, and they again turned to look. I guessed them about 200 yards, a dead-on hold with that rifle and load. I settled the crosshairs in that dark little pocket behind the buck's shoulders. They didn't wiggle. For an instance, there was a complete calm born of supreme confidence. I had him, and I knew it. After a full day of scouting, I felt certain this was the biggest buck on the ranch. So I had no second thoughts about shooting. I'd chosen him specifically, already passed up risky shots, and made two careful stalks. No one was going to roar over the horizon in a four-wheel drive truck and screw this up. At this pace, in this place, in this time and space, predator and prey had arrived at perfection in their ancient relationship. I don't believe fate brought us together, but somehow the timing had been perfect. I squeezed the trigger, and both pronghorns raced up the ridge. An observer might have thought I'd missed, but I knew better. I sat on my heels and I watched them go, the doe flowing like mammalian water over the rough ground. Her legs a blur, her back line nearly straight and level, her neck stretched slightly forward. Behind her thundered the buck, as he'd done a thousand times before during that annual rut, matching her stride for stride, his long black horns projecting his route. But then he did something out of character. He slowed and allowed her to surge ahead. He couldn't keep pace. Quickly he fell farther behind, dropped on his side, and was dead. The shot had been perfect, slipping between ribs behind the shoulders, deflating the lungs and exiting through a rib in the far side. I doubt he felt any different than if he'd been blindsided by a rival buck. His horns stretched over 15 and a half inches, perfectly symmetrical, with fat bases and deep prongs that started well above the tips of his ears. The tips curled back slightly inward and down to end in polished ivory tips. He was not a BNC trophy he was merely perfect. And that was the one glitch in our hunt. It was so perfect that it has haunted me ever since. A benchmark against which all subsequent hunts must be judged. None ever quite measures up. That one perfect predatory experience has spoiled me. I'll probably never get over it, and that's just perfect. (laughs) Yeah I didn't remember a lot of those details, but now that I've read it, I remember Mike climbing up that windmill and doing the the looking from up there and all those failed stalks. But gosh, that is just what's so wonderful about pronghorn hunting. It they're diurnal animals and it's open country, so you can find them. And it's just I think that's what humans as natural predators do is we're we're lookers. You know, wolves go scent trailing and cougars stalk things and ambush them. And we we look and use our eyes, and and then after we have found our game, we stalk. And you can play it any way you want. You can you can stalk as close as a cougar might need to, uh, and you can take him with a bow, or you can shoot from a little farther, more safely with a rifle. And that's the wonderful thing about hunting is we get choices and options. But this this idea of perfection is what really makes it special. Um, and when you've got an opportunity like this where there is no other hunting pressure, you can take your time and really do it right. And I think that's what a lot of us miss about hunting in large public areas, national forests and stuff, and especially when the seasons are fairly short. It becomes a little bit too competitive because we're all trying to get the animal or the buck before someone else does. So that's the challenge. But gosh, if you can find a private ranch like this or draw a tag on public land where you don't have many other hunters because they're managing that herd so carefully, that allows you to take your time, look things over and really enjoy the fulfillment of a hunt like this. So yeah, I had my antelope. And by the way, antelope venison is spectacular. I mentioned in another a podcast how good sheep, wild sheep meat was. And it is, but it's, it's pretty hard to come by. Pronghorns are a lot more common. But we actually like pronghorn a little better than sheep. I used to always say sheep was absolutely the best. But when we started to make careful comparisons against pronghorn, my wife and I both decided we like pronghorn better. And of course, they have a reputation for being sagey and wild, and it's just no good. And I don't I don't understand that because if you take care of the meat properly, it is absolutely delectable. It's almost always incredibly tender and does not have a strong taste, but you've got to get the hide off, get that meat cooled down in a hurry. Um, boy, but we just would, (laughs) we'll take a pronghorn every year. Oh, and the one that I got, I just happened to bring him, um, down here for a visit. (laughs) This was the guy that I had such a perfect hunt bagging, um, and, of course, I don't mount everything that I shoot, but an animal this spectacular, I think, has to be appreciated. You know, folks will say, oh, who who wants the horns? You can't eat them, and you guys are just trophy hunting, and I think that's not quite accurate because the animal itself grew these horns for a reason. You know, it appreciates that horn and is respected for it. The other bucks look at this and say, that's kind of a stiff competition right there. And I'm sure the does look at it and go, that is a handsome brute of a buck I might want to spend some time with. So if the animal grows that material and respects it, I don't see why we should discount it. I think we admire the animals both for their their speed and their beauty and their elegance and and their horns and their antlers. And it's all part of nature, and I celebrate all of it. And that's why I have some taxidermy. I just would would hate to think of throwing these beautiful things away. Uh, someday they're going to return ashes to ashes and dust to dust like everything else. But in the meantime, I celebrate them here in the house. Every time I look at this guy, I think back to the, not just that hunt, but all of the wonderful pronghorn hunts I've had over the years. And I can smell the sage again and feel the crisp air at sunrise. And it's, it's, the whole thing just ties together beautifully. So uh, that's my story on this best little pronghorn hunt on a ranch in Colorado. If you can ever line one of those up, I'd say go for it because not only is the hunt top-notch and so's the dining, hey, this is Ron Spomer. You can watch us, by the way, on our YouTube channel, Ron Spomer Outdoors, where we cover a lot of topics uh, about cartridges and ballistics and bullets and all that. I mentioned in here I was shooting a 270 with a 130 grain bullet, but if you're interested in the 270, we have several videos up detailing what the 270 Winchester does and how it compares in performance in bullet drop and energy and deflection and such against many other cartridges. It's a good round for pronghorn, but it's also excellent for deer and quite quite adequate for elk and a lot of other animals so check out ron spomer outdoors on youtube and you can see a lot of those videos and we also have a blog on ron where you can read the details about that sort of thing and we're going to keep putting out these podcasts for you if you enjoyed this like and subscribe that always helps us out and we're glad to have you hunt on us and shoot straight